Thank you, everyone, for your presence and your uh, attendance tonight. We're going to continue with our study of Isaiah. It's like the fifth gospel. It's like one other gospel because so much of Isaiah appears again in the teachings and the sayings of Jesus and in the New Testament. Um, we're going to take these at about three chapters a week, and Isaiah 4 is a very small chapter, and, uh, but it's, it's, um, we'll, we'll follow that structure more or less week after week just to uh, get us through the first section of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters. Uh, that'll take us right up to the end of the year. Just to remind you of what we looked at, Isaiah 1, 2, and 3, and really 4 and 5 are, are a part of this, but especially 1, 2, and 3, those first three chapters, are a, um, it's a very discouraging in some ways, but a very sorrowful and, and sad, gritty image of desolation and ruin. And I think it opens that way to make us wonder how did things get this way? That, that uh, mighty Judah and mighty Zion, which is the, uh, the city of God, is left like an old shack in a field that's been burned down. How did we get to that? And the message of Isaiah is meant to be a prophecy that says to the people then and the people who would come in centuries later, sin brought this on. And the rebelliousness and the arrogance of God's people who did not submit themselves to the mission that God had for them. It cannot be sustained. But right there in the midst of it, as you get this image that in the first part of, of chapter 4, and, and of course I hope all of us understand that, that chapter numbers and verse numbers are added in later. They're not in the original text. They're, they're thrown in there. And that's why you have this... Uh, unfortunate little situation where uh, chapter 4 verse 1 is really a part of what goes on before it in chapter 3. Uh, they should have started chapter 4 with verse 2. That would have made more sense. But 4-1 is that last statement that in the, in the day of desolation, seven women will take hold of one man and say, you know, take away our disgrace. We'll even take care of ourselves, just take away our disgrace. It's a sad situation that the people of God should be in but in verse 2 you get a glimmer of hope a little beam of light piercing through the dark clouds in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem they will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. And then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy, and it will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. The desolation of the little cucumber hut in the field, of the old shack in the burned-down field, that is not the last chapter in the history of God's people, is what Isaiah is saying. He 
he's saying that what we're going to see again is we're going to see the old glory of the Exodus, the, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night that led the people out of slavery and out of their sorrow and into a new hope. He says, we're going to see that again. Now, to do that, God's going to build that out of a tiny little leftover remnant. In fact, it's those people that, that are so sorrowful, those, those women in disgrace, those people that you would look at them and you'd think, there's no hope here. But the gospel, the good news here is, is God can redeem them. God can clean them up. Though their sins be like scarlet, they can be made as white as snow. Uh, which that line he's already, he's already pronounced. But he's promising that that can happen. And it's called the branch of the Lord. The branch is that new shoot. It represents new growth. Uh, what you think is an old dead stump, what you think is an old withered plant, all of a sudden a new little green shoot appears on it. That's hope. He says, all those who remain in Jerusalem, and by the way, when the invaders come into Jerusalem, they're going to take the cream of the crop. They're going to take the best. They're going to take the rulers, the people with power, the people with influence. The ones who are left, you'd think, well, there's no hope now. God says, those are the ones I'm going to use. And the reminder of the cloud and the fire is to remind them, look, your whole nation was created by people who had been reduced to slavery. You were not a people. You were nobodies. You were dominated by the superpower of your day and age, by Pharaoh and Egypt. And yet, we made you into a nation, says God. We made you into a nation to show the rest of the world what it's supposed to be like. Now, the sad news is, is that they lose their way again, and God's going to have to clean Zion out with fire and with judgment. It's going to be serious, but it's going to lead to redemption. Now let's take a look at chapter 5. And um, chapter 5 is a song, it's, it's, a, it's a poem, it's a parable. And um, sometimes we can get sort of uh, highfalutin and, and, uh, and, and biblical with these things and yet I think that this song is meant I think this here we're really hearing Isaiah's voice in this song I think he's drawing people in with a song he's drawing people in with with some sort of poem that has words that that rhyme and there's wordplay involved in this um, if you're a student of recent history, in the early 20th century, there's something called Tin Pan Alley, if you've ever heard of that. These were the, the songwriters who were just churning out songs over and over and over again. Popular songs, popular tunes. It's the internet of its day. It's the Twitter of its day. Because people, not, not everyone was literate, but they heard tunes and they could sing tunes. And a lot of those tunes had to do with what was going on in the world. So a lot of your World War I songs come out of that. A lot of your songs about uh, concerns and worries come out of that. And so these songs become the, the uh, way that people communicate to each other. It's always been true in human history. Isaiah's got a song. He's going to sing a song for you. Uh, and this is like the country song. This is like a, uh, uh, you know, hey, why don't you play another somebody did somebody wrong song. 
because that's what this is. This is a somebody did somebody wrong song. And so I think there is a country uh, flavor to this uh, somehow in here. Uh, it's also a parable, and it functions like that parable that Nathan brought to King David. You remember that when Nathan goes to David and he says, I want to tell you about something that's going on in your kingdom that you ought to know about. Let's see if Nathan goes right in there and he says, David, uh, you're sinning and God has a real problem with this and you need to change your ways and I'm here to tell you that. You don't say those sort of things to the king. David's already killed people to cover up the truth. He won't stop at killing Nathan. But what he has to do is he has to get through David's denial into his heart and he has to get David stirred up. And so he tells him this story and he says, you've got a fella in your kingdom. He owns a lot of sheep. His neighbor just has one little lamb. In fact, the family's raised it. It's like a pet to them. The rich guy went and took the little lamb that belongs to the family, killed it, slaughtered it. David is just burning at that point. He says, who is he? I'll take him on. Who is he? Nathan says, it's you. See, now his heart, he's gotten through. He's gotten through the denial. Now he's like, okay. And he goes, you know what I know. So here, Isaiah's word is going to the people of Judah who are so caught up in their own arrogance and their riches. And we're going to see that later on in this chapter. But he first he has to sing a little song. And in this song, he says, you know, he says, uh, I want to tell you about a friend of mine. I want to tell you about a friend of mine who went out and planted a vineyard. And he was good to that vineyard. He took care of it, and he gave it the best soil, and he cleared the earth, and oh, everything was great. And he thought he's going to have the best vineyard around. Anything that that vineyard needed, he spared no expense. He did not tire. He was not lazy. He worked hard. And when the day came and he went out and looked for grapes, he got bad, rotten and so then when he says, so what do you think about my friend and the vineyard? Who do you think was right and who was wrong? And of course, everybody's going to say, well, your friend, he, the vineyard wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. That, that's unfair. Unfair. Judah needs to hear through the song, you're the vineyard. You're the vineyard. God went looking for good fruit and he found bad fruit. You see that in um, uh, verse 7 of chapter 5. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. They're the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress. There's an interesting wordplay there in uh, the original language that the words are just changed a little bit. He looked for mishpat and he found mishpah. Something's missing. It's like a word that sounds alike, but something's missing. Something's missing. And that's the word for justice and the word for the flowing of blood. He looked for sedekah and he found sedekah. Something's missing. There's a vowel missing. There's a consonant missing. Yeah. He looked for righteousness. He got cries of pain. See, something that poetic gets to people and they hear that and they're like, oh, man. God came looking for us to be just, and he came looking for us to be righteous. You know, but instead he gets something that's, that's the problem all around the world. So if God's going to take away the hedge and break down the wall of the vineyard and 
turn it into a wasteland. No one can blame Isaiah's friend, Isaiah's good friend that he loves, who has the vineyard. No one's going to blame him. It's like, sure, sure, he ought to tear it down. It's not worth it. He says, my good friend is God, and you're the vineyard. So then he starts into a series of woes. Okay. And this woe is like a, a, a warning of doom. And there's six. And they usually come in a set. They come in a six-pack. I don't know why that is. Woes come in a six-pack. You'll see it a lot in Isaiah. And it's pretty fitting with uh, Isaiah chapter 5 because one of the big problems with the people is, is that they're, um, they get drunk and stupid. And they, and, they miss, and they abuse people. And they forget their mission because all they're focused on is their own frivolity and their own pleasure and their own indulgence. So notice, for example, in uh, verse 8, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. What's so wrong with that? They're just buying up real estate because they're exploiting the people. They're kicking the people out of the land. They're buying up the land. They're owning the land and they're not thinking about how the land is meant to be uh, a gift to the people. The, the land that, that God has given all of them is a gift. He promised it to Abraham. They got it because of God's grace. And now here they are, buying up property and kicking people off the land. That's been a problem throughout human history. Trying to own everything. And so it's their greed and it's their, it's their uh, uh, pursuit of uh, ownership of the land and exploiting the poor that is, uh, is part of the problem here. That's injustice. Um, it's going to lead to the desolation of the houses. It's going to lead to their own downfall. In verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. They're self-indulgent. They're frivolous. They're not, they have no concern for God whatsoever. Everything is about their own status and their own indulgence. And, of course, these parties, you know, they're owning their land. There's, there's, a, there's a distinction here. The rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor. It's unfair. Um, because of that, the people are going to go into exile, and he says this is going to lead to their own destruction. He even uses the language of drinking to describe that. Um, verse 14, therefore death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, and it will descend, into it will descend their nobles and their masses with all their brawlers and their revelers. He says, the more, he's, here's my paraphrase, he says, the more you drink and you have these parties and you just keep pouring wine down your throat, Death is going to open up its throat, and it's just going to drink you down and take you down with it. Death is going to get drunk on you. The third woe you'll find in verse 18. This one's a little harder to understand. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. Uh, a good way to look at this is, this is woe 
on smart alecks. This is woe on the cynics, on the deniers. He says they're carrying around sin in a backpack. They're dragging it around behind them in a wagon. And that wagon is being towed. Their sin is on the cart, and it's being towed with, with cords made of lies and denial. They don't, they're not even aware of it. They don't even know. But they think that they're very special, and so they say, you know what, Isaiah, this big plan that God has, let's see it. Let's see it. There's nothing happening, Isaiah. We haven't noticed anything. Sure. Well, if God's going to do something, he'd better hurry up and do it. And he's saying, woe on you, because you, you don't even recognize what's going on. You can't even see it. And, you've got, and, you, and, and it, it would be bad enough if they were just making an argument saying, wait a second, Isaiah, convince us. You know, show us that what you're saying is true because we don't see any evidence. The evidence is right behind them. They're carrying it around on their carts. They've got it right there with them, hauling it around. And then they say, we don't see any reason why God should do anything. Look behind you. The fourth woe is in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We've heard this one probably quite often, and, and often it's brought up to talk about people who are changing the definition of things. It, it, originally, it probably has to do with people who are twisting words and being deceptive. That these are people that you can't trust. This is the problem that Jesus runs into with the Pharisees, where he, he will call them out and he'll say, you don't take care of your own parents. God told you to honor your parents and you don't take care of them because you say, well, we would take care of you, but we've already dedicated that to God, so we can't. He says, you say that divorce is okay because Moses gave you the uh, permission to get a divorce and that's just to protect people because he knew that you were hard-hearted, but he says the truth of the matter is you're just committing adultery and you're legalizing it and you're writing different labels on it, but it's the same thing. You're being unfaithful. And so here is that woe to those who play fast and loose with what God has ordered. I'm sh you you got to imagine, how is it that the people of God can get to this point that it leads to their own destruction after everything they've seen, after all the leaders they've had, at some point they have to get into justifying their own wicked ways. They have to find a way to justify what they're doing wrong. Uh, verse 21 is the fifth woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That's pretty plain. They're arrogant. And by the way, these are not six different groups. It's all one group. They suffer from all of this. You have to take it as a whole. Because then when we get to six, we, we, we say it again. You know, woe to you, he says, you're gold medalists in getting drunk. You're heroes at drinking. You're champions at mixing drinks. And they acquit the guilty for a bribe. They deny justice to the innocent. These are, the, these are supposed to be the leaders of Judah. These are the leaders of Jerusalem. This is the cream of the crop that's going to get uh, taken away when the invaders come. He says, you're supposed to be the ones, you're supposed to be like David, taking care of those who depend on you and your, and your place and your privilege and your responsibility, and instead, you're fleecing them. You're taking advantage of them. 
and you're doing favors for your friends. Um, he says, and it, what he's saying here, and I think this is still a lesson for us, that when people do this, there's going to be a cost to it. And that the injustices that we commit, the injustices that we embrace and accept, we can, you know, we can say, oh, everything's complicated and all that, and we can just go about our way. But the, the fact of the matter is, if we don't go into it with some, if they would have at least gone into it with some kind of humility, then maybe Isaiah's prophecy would have been different, maybe. But to go into it with that kind of arrogance that says, look, we know better than you, Isaiah. Who are you to come and tell us what God wants? We've been doing this for years. We've been leading Israel. Who are you to tell us what to do? We know, we know how to run a city. We've been running Jerusalem. David set it up. He took over the city. We know what's going on. We know what's best for Zion. Isaiah's just trying to tell him, look, I, I've got a word from God, you know, that's calling you to change your ways and turn back to him. And when we do that, there's going to be a cost to it. You can't unring a bell. You can't unscramble eggs. When it's been done, it's going to have to carry through. We'll get to that in chapter 6 also. Here are these leaders, though, that are consumed with their own pleasure. They're consumed with their own success, and they've become arrogant. And it's making God angry. It's making him angry not because he's petty. It's making him angry because his people, his shining city, Zion, which is supposed to be an example to every other empire and capital city around the world, his shining city is supposed to be an example to the rest of them how to do it, and they're failing. They're not honoring God. So now... God who's trying to work through his people to set an example for everyone else because he's angered by the injustice in these other nations has to now step in and be the avenger of justice against his own people. Because, you know, you could read through this and you could say, hey, look, Judah is really messing up, but... Are they really as bad as Assyria? Are they really as bad as the Philistines? Are they really as bad as any of the other groups? No, in fact, they're probably all around a little bit better. But that's not the point. That's the old excuse that says, oh, well, you know, at least we haven't killed anybody. At least we're, you know, hey, hey, we haven't harmed anyone. Okay, that's not an excuse. You don't get to use that. God expects more of them. Why? Because they're his vineyard. They're the vineyard that he set up, had a special plan with. He wanted to see that good fruit. He wanted to see those good grapes. He wanted to make some wine and toast the salvation of the whole world. But instead, they're just turning out rotten fruit. It's not only bad for them, it's bad for the whole world. And that's a real problem. So, here's God in verse 25. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuge in the street. Yet, for all this, his anger's not turned away. His hand is still upraised. So, he lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the end of the earth. And now, here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one of them slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist or a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their 
horse's hooves seem like flint and their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. He's saying that he's calling for this army and they come in and they are mean. They are professional. They are sharp. And that's scary. And meanwhile, what are the people of Jerusalem? They're lazy. They're drunk. They're arrogant. They're being stupid and cynical. They're lying. They're in denial. They don't have a chance. And, and this isn't just God being petty. This is, he's saying, look, you're not going to stand against, I mean, when these other nations come in and when, you know, when I, when I lift the gate and they show up, you, you don't have a chance. So they're going to be dealt with because they've They've, they've racked up this tab. They're going to have to pay the piper. Um, that's when we get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we have a break to the prophecy. We have a break to Isaiah's songs and his woes. And the material changes. And it's like we get a little bit of history, but we get this very important image. I've heard people say that if there was one chapter of the Old Testament that they could hold on to, if they could only keep one, they would keep Isaiah 6. That's probably because in Isaiah 6, we get, we go straight from the little cucumber hut in the burned out field and all these horrible pictures, suddenly, quickly, immediately, we go straight to the throne room of heaven. And we're meant to be knocked over, bowled over by how awesome it is. Words are going to fail, but he's going to do his best. Now, there's an opening here that actually means more than we think. In the year that King Uzziah died. When is that? Uh, maybe 742 B.C. It could be as uh, late as 738, 736. You take your pick. Somewhere in there. Okay. But that date is important for a couple of reasons. And again, we can't be exact because we have all these historical records and people count the, 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 the year of the rain differently. And it's, it's always been, as long as I've been familiar with Old Testament studies, it's always been confusing. Just know that it's somewhere in that time frame, 742 to 736, somewhere in there. A couple of things. One is, if you read um, 2 Chronicles 26, in fact, let's, let's just go visit 2 Chronicles 26 real quickly, yeah. 2 Chronicles 26, or um, 2 Kings 15, if you want the short version. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us a little bit about Uzziah, also known as Azariah. And I went the wrong way. You have to go backwards to get to 2 Chronicles. I'm thinking historically. And um, I'll stop talking to myself and start talking to you here in a second. Okay, 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah, the king of Judah. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was just 16 years old, and they made him in king in place of his father, Amaziah. How would you like that? You're 16 years old. Your uh, father, the king, is, is gone. And so they say, it's time for you to be the king. So he's the one who built Elath, and he restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. That's a good stretch. 
His mother's name was Jechaliah, and she was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. This is good. We've got a good king. We like this. This is good. When the king is good and the king does what God wants, it's good for the whole nation. It's good for all the people. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Yes. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. Oh, that's their big cities. Victory. Victory in the, you know, we're, we're, we're defeating them over there so that they don't come over here. This is happening. This is good. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. Now we're taking over their territory. This is just like David. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbal and against the Meonites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. That's big. People in Egypt are talking about our king. They're like, watch out. You don't want to mess with them again. Remember when we used to own them? No, let's not do that again. Their king, he, he's won some battles. They're doing well. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate. We've got a good building public works program. This is good. He fortified them. There's security. He built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns. We're doing well. We've got a good agriculture program. Because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plains, and he had people working in his fields and vineyards, he's taking care of the poor. He loved the soil. He's a farmer king. This guy is all right. Except he has a bad moment. He has a good army, but then he has this bad moment where he's thinking he's uh, kind of special. You uh, move on down to verse 19. He's going to go into the temple, and he's like, you know what, I don't need any priests. God, God, God's been good to me. He's not going to mind if I come in and light the incense. I ought to have the privilege of doing that. Priests are like, don't do this, don't do this. No, I can do this. Instantly, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. He, you know, the, the people, they're rushing him out of there. It's like, oh, no, you know, the priests are getting him out of there. He's getting out of there, too. He's like, oh, there's leprosy in there. I don't want to be in there. God's really, I've done it now. And so he lives with that until the day he dies. He lives in isolation. He pays for it. But other than that, Isaiah has been a great king. So when Isaiah says, in the year King Isaiah died, he's saying, it's the end of an era. It's the end of a good time. Because Isaiah kept us where we needed to be good things happened we were we were secure we uh we we had we had prosperity and good things are going on meanwhile right around the time that Isaiah dies over to the east in a place called Assyria and Assyria is a little empire over there they're kind of growing They've been sort of knocking around and, you know, taking over their neighbors. But there's a fellow who's a general of the army, and his name is Kulu. And Kulu, right around 745, decides, you know what? This royal family, 
They don't deserve to rule. They don't know what's going on. So, he has a coup, and it is a bloody coup. And he kills most of the royal family, and he takes over, and he takes on the royal name Tiglath-Pileser, which you're going to see in the Bible. Tiglath-Pileser III, just to be correct. Anyway, that's the start of a big Assyrian push. He, he's, he's sort of the Vladimir Putin of his day. People start to get a little nervous about him. He's starting to rally all the old nations and all the old nations that they had, you know, they would take over, they would let you rule, you would have to kick up to them, take care of them. Now he's starting to add their armies to his own, and they get, that's that army that Isaiah was talking about in chapter 5. They are sharp, they are professional, they are good, and they just keep expanding. So right around the time that Isaiah dies in Jerusalem, news is going around saying, have you heard about those fellows over there in the east? think they're coming this way yeah they want to go all the way to the sea what stands between them and the sea us that's not good we're in the crosshairs so all of this happening right then matters and it's right there in the midst of that that Isaiah's work begins God has this prophet who has a very important message that the people need to hear at a very important, critical time. And it all begins with God revealing himself to Isaiah. So we get this vision of heaven. You've got the seraphim, the angels. They've got six wings. They cover their faces. Why? Because God is holy. They cover their feet. And then they use the other two for flying. They're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Angels in heaven get it. The people don't understand God's glory, but the angels in heaven do. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. This is Isaiah. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. There's that purification by fire. We're burning out what's unclean. Now your speech has been cleansed. It's been purified. It's redeemed. It's that remnant. It, 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 God's going to restore it. He's going to use that. You're clean now. So. Uh, the guilt is taken away, the sin is atoned for, and then he hears the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And so he says, here am I, send me. He's volunteering, why? Because of grace, he's been cleansed, he's been saved, he didn't die upon seeing God. He says, well, if you need to send someone, I'm here. Okay. Now, this is both wonderful and risky at the same time. Because God gives him a message. It's not the message that he wants to take to the people, but it's the message that he must take to the people. He says, you go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. 
We see this again in, in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4 when Jesus explains why he preaches with parables. Because his disciples ask him, he says, you know, again, a paraphrase. They're like, Jesus, why don't you just shoot it straight? Why don't you just tell the people, you know, what, what you know? Why are you, why are you teaching with parables? And he tells them, he says, because they, they've, they've had it straight. They, they, there's been people before me that have shot straight with them. He says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. So Jesus is connecting himself to the prophet Isaiah and saying, at least as far back, the centuries going back to Isaiah, my people have heard what God wants to say, but they don't listen. They hear it, but they don't listen. They see it, but they don't see it. We get that, don't we? If we're still struggling with that, we're like, I don't understand. It's an image. They have the ability to hear and they don't get it. They have the ability to see and they just don't see it. Now, this isn't God playing a game with them. What Jesus is saying, I'm going to preach in parables because the people who are searching the kingdom, they're going to see it. They're going to see it in the parable. And those who don't, if you tell it straight out to them, they're just going to shut you off. They're going to tune you out. Listen, anybody who's ever preached gets this. You can preach and preach and preach and preach and people still don't get it. God is not saying, Isaiah, I'm going to send you out there to fail. That's kind of what it sounds like. I'm going to send you out there and you're going to tell everybody what I want you to tell them. Nobody's going to listen to you. Sounds like a good plan, God. He says, the point is, you're going to share the message. He says, but in sharing that message, it's actually going to turn them off. They don't want to hear the truth. So their hearts are going to get callous. Their hearts are going to get, you know, uh, just fat is what the Hebrew says. Their hearts are just going to get dull. They're just going to, they're just going to tune you out. You know, it's like people today. You're going to be talking and they're going to be doing this on their phones. Okay, yeah, all right. You know, they don't really hear you. It's like, you know, if you've ever had that experience when you're trying to tell someone, maybe a child or something like that, it's like, look, I'm trying to tell you something that's good for you, something that you need to know. Okay, okay. Sometimes you just have to let them experience it. That's what he's saying to Isaiah. He's saying, you're going to preach this, and this message has to be preached. But in some ways, preaching this message is going to set in motion the very thing that we don't want to do, but it's got to happen this way. And so Isaiah says, how long is this going to have to go on like this? And he says, until all the impurity is burned out. But when it is, and that's where we get to verse 13. Oh, it's going to be burned out. It's going to look like it's going to be burned and burned again. But there's going to be holy seed left in that stump, which takes us back to the branch. This is the idea of the remnant, and we'll pick up on this next week. But the idea of the remnant comes up again and again in Isaiah. That God's going to take that faithful remnant, and he's going to do something with them. But to get to it, he's got to clean off all the impurity, because that's standing in the way of God's mission. And we've seen stories like this before. It's the story of Noah. God has to deal with the impurity that's there it's the story of the exodus god has to deliver his people and when they're unfaithful they wander in the wilderness until finally he's got a group of people who will trust him and and do what he he, he asked them to do 
He's going to do this with the people who go into exile. He's going to do this with the leftovers in in Jerusalem. And he's going to do it again with the exiles in Babylon. And we'll see how Isaiah preaches this message faithfully, even though people are going to shut him off. And really, you know, there's kind of two takeaways from that. One is we see Jesus, and we see Jesus doing the same thing. I mean, he's telling the truth like nobody before him has ever or since has ever done. And yet God's people, the ones who should know better, are just turning Jesus off. They just won't listen. They commit the unforgivable sin, which is they see the Holy Spirit and they say, ah, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's sinfulness. And, and then the other message is we don't want to be like the people of Jerusalem who have fat hearts and don't hear. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. Thinking that we see everything. Boy, we, we want to we wanna ask God to, to heal us and redeem us. So we, we need humility. We're going to uh, sing this song now. If you need to partake of communion, uh, that's been prepared in room 100. So uh, let's stand and sing, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.